Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. On this episode of Most Notorious, Mary Ann Cotton, known throughout history as a cold-blooded serial killer. But was she really? So, here we have all these deaths, as I said to you at the beginning, 20 in total. And she's now in West Auckland with these 20 deaths in her wake. And as I've tried to do, I say, was she or was she not? guilty of all these deaths. Welcome all to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis, back again. So pleased to have Martin Connolly as my guest today. He is from Belfast, Ireland, and has had his writing published in numerous magazines and teaching materials in multiple disciplines. He has also written multiple books, including Hitler's Munich Man, The Fall of Admiral Sir Barry Domville, and he is here to talk about Mary Ann Cotton, Dark Angel, Britain's first female serial killer. Great to have you on. Thank you. A pleasure, Eric. A pleasure. So you were encouraged over the years by readers of of your other books to tell the story of Mary Ann Cotton. That's correct. I used to be a post sub-postmaster uh, in the village of West Auckland. And obviously, I wrote a short history of the village, which was different items which were important in the village. And one of them was Mary Ann Cotton. And a number of people, well, more than a number, quite a few, uh, said, well, look, could we know more about this Mary Ann Cotton? Because what we hear on the web and what have you really doesn't amount to what we believe is the truth. And so my job then was to do research into her and find out what was happening. And to make matters more interesting, you worked in close proximity to the actual locations associated with her. Did that help connect you to the case a little bit more? Yes, very much so. I mean, I could see her house from the window of my post office. I passed it every day of my life. 
Um, so I knew the house very well. I knew the graveyard where the bodies were buried uh, that uh, took the deaths that took place in West Auckland. And I, uh, you know, was able to walk around the graveyard. I also was able to go to the various villages where she lived and had a good look around all the vi towns and villages where she was. So I got a very good grasp of the kind of place it was in terms of the modern towns and villages. But if you want to know Marianne Cotton, you really have to go and live in Victorian England. And for a lot of people in America and indeed England, that's hard to do because there's an awful lot of anachronisms in which people bring modern ideas into the story and therefore cloud the truth of what actually happened. Interesting, yeah. I can give you a bit of background of the Victorian movie to get you there, if you like. That would be lovely, yeah. Okay, well, well, well let's, let, let's take you there. I want you to imagine a situation in which there is a huge new industrial landscape building up where the mining industry has been going on for centuries and years, uh, and you have a dirty, filthy place where sometimes 20 to 100 people could share one toilet. Um, sanitation, the whole place would stink. Rivers would stink. It was a dark, dirty place. And it was a place where only the exciting, if you like to use that term, murders made into uh, the papers and into the publicity. For instance, there was the Mannings in 1848. Now, they invited Patrick O'Connor across for dinner, and whilst he was having dinner, they murdered him and buried him in the kitchen of their home to get the money. They were finally caught. You've got a girl called Amelia Diar who killed 400 babies and threw their bodies into the Thames River. And you had Katie Webster, another famous killer. She killed her employee, employer with an axe and then boiled her body, all except the head and foot, which she threw away. Um, so these were the kind of background murders which made the headlines. But you've also got the Jack the Ripper, which everybody's familiar with. But the thing is this, a lot of murders went undetected because if you take the police force, they were only beginning to emerge. They were very poor. Uh, there was no detective agency, and an inspector of police would probably do the investigations. So a lot of killings went undetected, and a lot of them were done by poisoning, particularly arsenic. Now, the reason why arsenic was a, a good one to use, its symptoms were very similar to a lot of diseases which were rampant. For instance, there was a cholera outbreak in Victorian England, where 30,000 people were killed in one year. And you had typhus, you had scarlet fever, you had an awful lot of diseases. So a lot of death occurred, and there was no serious investigation. And against that background, you find Mary Ann Cotton. And that's why it's important to understand that background, to understand her and her life. What were the symptoms of arsenic poisoning? Well, the, you, you, would, uh, you could rise and, uh, and uh, have a kind of a fit. You could foam at the mouth. Um, you, you, you would have vomiting and you know, the hot fevers. Now, gastric fever, for instance, which was a common disease for children, 
that exactly what had happened with that. So that's why the arsenic poisoning uh, was very uh, similar to these sort of fevers, and therefore they could pass unnoticed. And don't forget that arsenic was very easily obtained um, because you got it. Now, listen to this. This is the crazy thing. You could buy a thing called arsenic soap, which was used to clean and disinfect the dirty houses. But you could reduce the soap down and the arsenic could be extracted. Uh, there was also green wallpaper. Now, the green wallpaper, Queen Victoria removed it from all of her palaces and houses because it contained arsenic that when you rubbed it or tried to wash it in heat, the arsenic could peel off and fill the room uh, with arsenic. So you can see the situation of deaths happening and looking like disease, but also being contributed to by things which uh, at that time were not fully understood. And therefore, this whole scene was where Mary was existing. Interesting. So let's begin, if you don't mind, with what we know about Mary Ann Cotton's early life. Sure. She was born in 1832 as Mary Ann Robson. That's correct. Yeah, she was born in uh, West Rangeon in, in the north of England. Uh, into a very strict Methodist family. And her, she herself, as she grew up as a teenager, a young girl and teenager, was a Sunday school teacher. And she taught Sunday school to the children. Um, her father was a miner, and uh, he worked hard as a miner would do. He was one of the guys who used to start the pit off, which was very dangerous. Um, so in her early life, uh, her father died when she was only 10 years old. And so this trauma came into her life as well. He died in a mining accident. That's right. He fell down the shaft that he was beginning to build. And the thing is, is I want you to put, again, helping you to get into the picture. Can you imagine a young girl, 10 years of age, and how they delivered the body to the house was they put it on a cold cart, which is like a hand cart, covered it with a bag with the miners, the mining company's name on it, brought it home to the house and handed it over to the widow. Can you imagine a 10-year-old seeing that? Yeah, I can only imagine the trauma she might have suffered from. Do you, do you think that was the defining moment for her early on? I believe it was. It was because what it contributed to was the moving into her home of a man called George Stott, who became her stepfather. And that relationship was never an easy one for Mary because evidence shows she was a very headstrong girl and wanted to make her way. And you can imagine that a rigid stepfather coming in uh, would sort of squash her individuality. And that's why at 16 years of age, she left home to work as a, a childminder for a, a mine manager, Potter. So she needed to get away from that situation. And that wouldn't have happened if the death hadn't happened. You see what I'm saying? So that trigger then spurred her into the world at 16 to look for her, let's put it this term, to look for her fortune. And I think that's where it all starts from. Do you think she was actively seeking a, a fortune at that young age? 
Yes, I think she was because, again, you've got to live there to understand it, Eric. You're a kid. You're in a mining home where the money is tight. You've got very few pleasures. And we know from the history that Mary liked to, to have fancy dresses. She liked to look good. And therefore, there was no money. And your, you know, your mother and father and then your stepfather are scraping the pennies together. And here you are as a child, if you like, at 16, uh, which is a teenager. Today, we would say they're very free. But in those days, a 16-year-old wanted money, wanted to get out, wanted to, be, you know, wanted to live. And that's why I believe she left home to go to work, because then she would have her own income. Right, yeah. And around the age of 18, she meets an older man named William Mowbray. Yeah, William Mowbray, she met him and became pregnant to him outside marriage in 1852. Now, again, you're asking for points where what does trigger things? Well, if you can imagine the situation, she has been a young girl who taught Sunday school, strict Methodist background. William Mowbray was also a Methodist. And here they are, not married, and suddenly she has to announce she's pregnant. Can you imagine the reverberations through the strict religious order of, of a village? You can see the problem she's going to face. Pre right. The prejudice uh, against her would be Im immense. And they don't even get married in a Methodist church. They get mar married in a registry office, but they go to the church at Newcastle for a blessing. Um, but they have to leave the area now because she cannot bring up what people would call a bastard child born outside marriage. Um, so she had to get away so she could have the baby with her husband, uh, William. And that's why they moved to the south of England. How many children does she have with William? Well, she ha th this is a good question, Eric, because we <laughs> the, the truth is we don't know. What we do know is that there was definitely one. She was pregnant. And we do know that she brought one back with her when she moved back from the south of England. Now, there are rumors that she had four to five children while they were away. I have done intense research on this, and I could not find any records of birth for her and William over the period. Now, that is not unusual, because in those days, you didn't have to register a birth as such. You would get them baptized, and that's where the record would be. But there is no records of any children over that period. So the answer is we don't know. So as we'll soon learn in almost routine fashion, the people who surround her die. And it's either just by incredible coincidence or of course, something more sinister was well, going well, on. Let's, let's, let's look at that for a second. In the sort of gossip, if you like, of the of history, she is said to have killed 20 people and pigs. She's also accused of, a, of poisoning pigs. You see, you give a dog a bad name and the dog lives forever with that name. Let me, I just, let me just give you a, I won't read the whole thing to you, but there was a song written while she was in prison by outsiders. I'll just read you the first verse and chorus because it's too long to read. The West Auckland poisoner at last has been tried. 
that she is guilty cannot be denied. Her crimes have struck terror all over the land and deep indignation on every hand. No feelings of pity was in her hard heart. She never has acted the good woman's part. With dark deeds of murder, she perled her soul and her children destroyed for possessions of gold. No one can pity, no one can bless Miriam Cotton for her wickedness. The West Auckland poisoner condemned doth lie. She murdered her children and soon she must die. That gives you a flavor of the way people looked at her over the years. Yeah. But let me tell you, she was only convicted of one murder. And when you look at the history of the time she lived in, and this is why my book leaves the question open as to whether or not she was guilty. I leave people to make up their own mind. But when you go into the deaths, I don't know how much detail you want, but every single death, including the one she was uh, finally convicted of as murder, every one of them, including that last death, were certified by doctors as natural causes, illnesses, every single one of them. And you have to ask yourself the question then, were the doctors all stupid? Did they not understand their own diagnosis? And there's a good question. <laughs> did they or did they not? And, you know, when you go through the deaths, I don't know how much detail you want, but all the children's deaths were due to either gastric fever or typhus or one of the childhood illnesses. Now, remember, Eric, that in England in those days, a whole household could be wiped out in a week with disease because it was so rampant in some homes because you also had multiple family occupancy. And there were also deaths which were initially, let me give you one example. There was three children in England down in London and initially the parent was accused of killing them. But the health, uh, let's call him the health inspector from the council went out to the home and he discovered green wallpaper. And when they did tests, they then found that the kids, the three kids, had not died from being poisoned by the parent. It was the green wallpaper that killed them. And a doctor who was in his study where the heat was on began to become ill. So when he came out of the room where he was, he, he recovered. And he worked out, again, it was the green wallpaper. And this is one of the problems with Marianne Cotton is that she used arsenic soap to clean her home and she also had green wallpaper, which she used to wash with the arsenic soap. So her house was probably filled with arsenic in the air. And there's one of the difficulties of trying to say every single death was a murder. But the question, of course, that seems to be the obvious one. Why everyone but her? She doesn't die, but everyone around her does. There was two occasions where she was sick, or two of the two of the deaths um, where she herself took ill. So she did experience illness on two occasions. Uh, so you know, 
<laughs> does that answer the question that she, why did she not die of it? Also, she, you have to understand that when the arsenic poisons in the air, you have to be very robust to try and survive it. And if you look at some of the adult deaths, they were already ill or weak when they then didn't recover. So again, you have to ask yourself the question, you know, I, I agree with you that it's suspicious, no doubt about that, but is it definitely slam dunk she is guilty? My problem is I don't know whether she is or not. All I'm asking people to do is to stand back and ask themselves the questions as to whether or not she was. And that's what my book is about. It's about this idea of showing you how the background suggests that there were some deaths. Now, if you take the death of George Ward, one of her husbands, now he was under the care of her in a hospital. She was, a, if you like, a nursing assistant. And she nursed him and then married him. Now, the thing about this is that there were three doctors involved in his care. Three doctors who then had public arguments about his treatment because the newspapers then got the hold of it and the doctors were disputing with each other why he died. But they were treating him. So she would have to have poisoned him under the eyes of three doctors. Is that possible? Yeah, good, good question. <laughs> so I think it would be helpful for listeners if we did a timeline of her marriages and children okay and and address the deaths chronologically yeah okay so we're at william now yes well after william um and they come back as i say to the, the north of england they have one daughter with them uh, margaret jane uh but then mary ann mowbray dies uh in 1857 and in 1858, Isabel Mowbray is born. And in 1859, Mary Ann Mowbray dies. Again, that was the second child. And then 1860, Margaret Jane Mowbray dies. So you've got deaths there pretty regular uh, of the children. And it seems that, you know, a child is born and you know, 1863, John Robert is born. 1864, he dies at one years of age. So, you, you know, looking at it in circumstantial, it does appear strange that all these kids are being born and dying in such a short period. I mean, the, the child mortality rates, of course, were, were higher during that era. That's correct. But was anyone suspicious of these deaths? Or was no, it it's all? A, it's an excellent question, but no, no one raised any questions. And every one of the children who died that I've just given you were all examined by doctors who declared them to die of natural causes, natural disease. So, and there was no outcry. And it wasn't until 1865 where William Mowbray, her husband, dies. And he again is examined by doctors and people have accused her of killing him. But the doctors certified him as dying from typhus fever. Now, what's important about that 
is typhus fever has a particular rash. And the doctors noticed this, and that's why they certified him as dying from typhus fever, not poisoning. Hmm. So the, the likelihood of her killing him, I think, in that case, is pretty remote because you've got a doctor looking at the circumstances and coming to a very specific diagnosis of typhus fever and certifying it um, because of the rash that was involved. And that was in January 65. It's 1865, April, uh, just a few months later, that Margaret Jane Mowbray dies. Now, again, the doctors certify her death as typhus fever. So you can see that whilst there is a pattern of death, all these doctors are involved, and they're saying it's natural causes. Right, right. <laughs> and so you, you can see Marianne Cotton is bedeviled by death. And there are some where you don't know, you can't understand, everything's fine, nobody complains, doctors are happy. We've got the death of William and Margaret here in 65. And again, doctors saying, no, it's typhus fever. There's a rash. So what do you, how do you call it, I, Eric? <laughs> <laughs> you can see the problem. Right. Back in a jiffy. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's The Audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned. So at this point... Marianne leaves her remaining daughter, Isabella, with her mother. That's correct. And then goes off and meets her second husband. Well, I'd be careful the way you phrase that. Can I just caution? She didn't go off to meet her second husband. What she did was she wanted to work again. And the place where she wanted to work was a hospital. And she became a fever nursing assistant in the hospital. But in order to be free to do that job, she decided that Isabel would be better off with her mother, whom she had reconciled with after the pregnancy that she was uh, moved to South for, because her mother actually traveled to the South to meet her in the South uh, to reconcile. And that's why she came back to the North, because her and her mother had reconciled and got on very well. Now, at this point, before I go on to another death, there's an important point to say about Isabella the fact that she's with Mary's mother is to Mary's benefit because that means she's free. Now, bear that in mind because there will be a death coming up soon where I want to come back to that. <laughs> sure. So, therefore, she goes there. And in 65, she marries, August 65, she marries uh, George West. I'm uh, sorry, George Ward. So, George is married in August 65 to her. Now, remember what I said to you about his death in 1866, October. He dies, but he already was seriously ill. So the three doctors are attending him, fighting each other and getting annoyed with each other because they're, you know, you're interfering with my, my patient sort of thing. So you've got three doctors involved of a, a man who is already extremely ill. And he dies. Now, who killed him? Did she? <laughs> what would you think, Eric? Oof, yeah. It, it, it's difficult, of course, without being able to speak with her now, you know. Uh, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't that be lovely? It's interesting what the doctors certify his death as, by the way. They certify it as English cholera. A specific disease again. So my problem and I struggle with in this one is he's dying anyway. Three doctors are supervising it. They're even putting leeches on him to drain his blood using leeches. Um, and so if she is determined to kill him, do you think she would risk it on a dying man who three people or uh, three doctors are attending? That's my problem with that one. Did she have financial motive at all yes yes 
there was in, in the William Mowbray and the children there, there was uh, some insurance money uh, that came to her benefit. I think from memory, I can't have in front of me, I think it's about £1,500 in today's money it would be uh, that she would, would have gotten. Uh, for those deaths. But that was, again, we have to not be anachronistic here. It was quite traditional in Victorian England for the penny insurances. Everybody took insurance out on people because death was so frequent and the taking out of prudential insurance was quite common. It wasn't, uh, you know, very rarely, uh, except in the high profile cases, would it be done for nefarious reasons. So the fact that she had insurance on these people that were dying cannot be suggested as a motive because everybody had insurance on their people. Uh, cheap insurance prudential would come around and collect it. You know what I mean? So it was easy to do. Um, so the, 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 motive, the money motive is possible. Don't get me wrong. It's possible. And with Mary, who likes money, and you'll see later on <laughs> that she definitely is uh, a woman who wants money and will do anything to get it. But did she do it for that reason? Open question. Now, George Ward, um, he didn't have any major finance or wealth. That's why I remember when I was writing this story and researching it, I felt it strange that she married him because there didn't appear to be any financial gain in it. Um, and if you wanted to be charitable, you could say she felt sorry for him. But on the other hand, you could say, well, why did she marry him? There didn't appear to be a financial incentive because he was a, he was quite a poor man. Now I'll give you something else, <laughs> which may suggest she did murder him. Let me give it to you. In eighteen sixty six December, right? Uh, she moves in with James Robinson as a housekeeper. Now that is October. Her husband George dies in December. She's moving in as a housekeeper. And if I said gently to you, Eric, being sort of a, you know, a religious man, as I am, I don't think the vote of his housekeeper wears well when you discover she gets pregnant outside marriage again through this man. And he was in a very good position in terms of his job and therefore had a bit of money. So, <laughs> having discussed George Ward <laughs> and whether she killed him or not under the auspices of three doctors, here she is a few months later moving into a man who she may have had her eye on. Hmm. You see the point I'm trying to do here? I'm trying to disturb the status quo and say, let's not rush to judgment, but at the same time trying to be balanced and say there are arguments on both sides. And there are good reasons why these murders might have occurred, but could they be coincidence and could there be other reasons? Right, right. Well, <laughs> well, I, I'd like to ask you about the title of your book, uh, the subtitle, Britain's First Female Serial Killer. That's correct. Is that the, the final verdict from you? Or is that what history has labeled her. The reason why I put it in the title is because that is what she was called. And the book, The Dark Angel, basically reflects the fact that this is how she was seen. And the book is to say, this is who people have claimed her to be. 
And what I do in the book is I don't give a verdict. I leave it open because I want the reader to read it, uh, especially the court case, which I hope we'll come to eventually, but to read it and say to themselves, what do you think? What do I think? And let you, the reader, make the judgment. Yeah. Yeah, your book is very even-handed towards the case. Definitely. So back to the timeline, uh, James Robinson. So she moves in with James as a housekeeper in December, and in the same month, one of his sons dies. His son. He has been under the care of a doctor who certifies him as dying of natural causes. Now, she just moved in, but the child was already ill before she moved in. Now, you have to say that when she moved in, she immediately goes and kills him. Or he dies of natural causes, as the doctor said. What do you think? Do you, <laughs> do you jump to the conclusion that just because she moved in and he dies, she must have done it? Right. Is that a fair conclusion? Uh, I'm sorry, that was just a rhetorical question. I, no, not, no, I understand. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not making any <laughs> jump to judgment there. I'm just simply saying she moves in in December as a housekeeper, and uh, in December and in the same December of that year, the same month, the son dies. But he was ill before. Now, what we then come up to in '67, which is March, just a few months later, Mary's mother dies. Now. Again, people accuse, in hindsight, because none of these deaths attracted attention at the time, Eric, but now the people who, because of her reputation when she was caught, say she killed her mother. Now, again, let's look at this on an even-handed basis. Mary's mother had Isabella. That was to Mary's advantage, because it meant that Mary had not the burden, if you like, of having that child with her while she was in the Robinson situation. Mary's mother was already ill. That was why she was called to the mother's home. And therefore, she went to that home because her mother was ill. And during her visit there, the mother dies. Now, I'm going to throw some mud on the wall here. <laughs> Mary went there, mother's looking after the child, to Mary's advantage, why would she kill her? That's the question I put in the air. Then let me give you another little bit which is interesting. Do you remember her stepfather, George? Sure. Well, when the mother dies, George, a couple of months later, marries the next door neighbor. Uh what do you make of that? Well, uh, let me just say uh, Elvis Presley's song, Suspicious Minds. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you want to be suspicious, you might say, well, had he had her, his eye on her all along, or was it just a coincidence? And was it just a coincidence that the mother dies when Mary's there? I just put it in the air, Eric, and let the reader decide. <laughs> <laughs> so 
she takes Isabella back to the Robinson house. That's correct. And once she returns, death follows? Well, it definitely does. Within a month, in April, three deaths occur. Isabella, James Robinson Jr., and Elizabeth Robinson. All three children die within that month. Now, do you remember I said to you it was not a coincidence a lot of children did die um, of diseases quite, you know, run. But let me say to you that Dr. Shaw, he was in attendance to all these deaths. Now, the interesting thing here is he certifies all three deaths as connected by gastric fever. And the interesting thing here, Eric, because you asked about this earlier on, this was one of the occasions where Mary Ann became seriously ill. Now, again, what do we say? The house is obviously, according to the doctor, filled with the gastric fever, which was contagious. And if Mary was looking after these children, washing, cleaning their vomit and what have you, she gets seriously ill as well. So did she poison the children and accidentally swallow some poison herself? A rhetorical question, obviously. Of course, yeah. Do you see the difficulties, Eric? Yes, um, yes. Jumping to any conclusion is difficult in these circumstances. But having said that, in 1867, the same year, March, the, the day, the next month, Mary is pregnant. And Mary gets seriously ill. And then in August that year, she marries James Robinson. Uh, I have to say, in her defense, if, if James had been suspicious of her in the slightest, one would assume he, he wouldn't go on to marry her. Exactly. You know, after <laughs> what had happened in the house. Now, it's interesting you should say that because when she was then arrested for the murder that which, she, which she was convicted, both James and his sisters start saying, oh, I thought so much, I thought this, and, and what have you. So they're, they're being anachronistic in the, even in that time, putting it back to Mary. But nobody at that time raised a single question as to these deaths. The Dr. Shaw, who attended them, was quite happy that the whole thing, including Mary's illness, was gastric fever. So in, you see what I'm saying? It, it's easy when people start... Uh, charging her with this, that, and the other, to go back in history and say, oh, she must have done that as well. And that's what the problem, as you just raised, Eric, no one at the time raised a single question. What is gastric fever exactly? That, that's not a term widely used now. Well, no, gastric fever, uh, we actually do get it uh, uh, today. I think it's a Novara virus that comes. What it is, it's, it's a virus which infects the gut, and it causes the child uh, and whoever gets it, if it's an adult, to react with a fever, a very high-temperature fever. There is vomiting. There is the inability to keep down fluid, inability to keep down food, and so the weakness comes in, and eventually, especially with children, because obviously there's less strength in the child, and if it's a prolonged effect, that is what they die from. Um, it, it's the, the whole fever and the vomiting eventually kills them because they just cannot stand. And maybe that's why Mary survived, because an older woman, she obviously was more robust. Hmm. 
Does that have, have something to do with salmonella? Yes, it could be because, you see, in those days, don't forget, this is one of the problems with Victorian murders. There's no forensic. There's no DNA. There's no way to, to test anything uh, properly. There was one forensic test for arsenic, but it was very sort of primitive. There was no test to say that. It could have been salmonella, but I would suggest it was gastric flu, uh, sorry, fever for one reason, is that remember what I said about sanitary conditions. They were very poor. And therefore, one of the ways the gastric fever was transmitted was by bad hygiene. And it, you know, if you take to become quite crude about it, when you're you're pooing and the poo is contaminated with the the virus, and you're trying to clean it up, and you're going onto somebody else without without doing proper cleansing, you could be carrying it to another person. So the spread of it is quite possible. Hmm. After they're married, you write that she takes over the household finances. That's that correct? correct. That's correct. And yes, that's right. She takes over the finances of the home, including lodging the money on behalf of James at the Building Society. And she has the child who was born, Mary Isabel Robinson was born. But uh, she was born in November 67, by 19, sorry, 1867. And by 1868, February, she dies. That's the child that she was pregnant with. Now, the doctor, again, certifies it as convulsions, but not certified, which is interesting. It means that he wasn't present at the death, that he has to take the description of the death to come to a conclusion. So then they separated. Well, yeah, but before we get there, let's don't forget there's George Robinson is born as well, another child, before that happens. But this is where we get to the character of Mary and money because this is where she steals the money and tries to get loans by forgery. And it's at that point, because of that action, her thievery and her wanting to get money and one of the questions that I raise is, what did she do with the money? Other than buy dresses, uh, there doesn't seem to be any way she spent them. Uh, but it, that was enough for him. And at that point, he goes away and he takes his natural son with him. Uh, sorry, he takes his children with him. But George, the son that was just born, Mary Ann takes him. So John, uh, Robinson goes off to his sister's with his children, and Marianne goes with George and disappears at that point. And that, that's the sequence. It's the stealing and the forgery of the trying to get loans that caused uh, James to, to leave her. And he doesn't suffer an untimely death, right? No, he doesn't. He lives to a nice ripe old age. Uh, interesting, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh. <laughs> Very interesting. Uh, but there's another little, let me drop it in, it's in the book as well. You can read about how she did it or how she didn't do it. That's I, I deliberately say that, did or didn't do it. But the, at her trial, a chemist comes forward from Newcastle and he says that he accuses Marianne of buying arsenic in his shop in January 1869 under the name Marianne Booth. Now, why that's interesting is Marianne Booth was an early neighbor 
of Marianne Cotton, or sorry, Marianne Robinson, she was in the village in the north of England. Now, is, it a, is that a coincidence? Or is that just a, a name that Mary used because she could use it and knew it? Because when people use uh, false names, sometimes they tend to use names they're familiar with. And here we have Mary Ann Booth buying arson, arsenic in Newcastle. Because you had to give your name, you see, when you purchased it. Now, was that Marianne? The chemist says it was. Right, right. Uh, you, you see how difficult this is getting, because we cannot prove that that was Marianne. The chemist said it was. But is he saying that because he's now in the middle of a murder trial where she's been accused left, right, and center in the newspapers? And he says, oh, well, it must have been her. You see what I'm saying? Uh, is the evidence credible? Uh, that's all I'm posing uh, in this case. Um, after you know such a time, which is about two or three years later, uh, four years later, when he's given evidence. So did she buy that? You know, we don't know. Right, right. So she doesn't divorce James Robinson, right? No, she doesn't. But let, let me again, I need to put something in there to her with this child, George. If she is such a murderess of children, why is it that she brings George back to a neighbor and leaves him with the neighbor and goes off? Why didn't she kill him? That's true. Again, a rhetorical question, Eric, because there's no answer. But, you know, if she was a murderer of children, what I said, Eric, was why did she bring George back to her neighbor to give him back to his father while she disappeared. You know, why didn't she kill him? Hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? If she's such a, a, a just a, a ruthless killer of children, here she brings the child George back to give him to his father, and then she disappears. Why didn't she murder him? It's a, it's, it's a question. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> um, and then, as I say, there is a period in her life where she disappears. With, there's a, a kind of a gap where we don't know where she was or what she was doing after she leaves James Robinson. And she then turns up in Spennymore. And in 1869, we now come to some more deaths, which she was accused of being involved in. In 1869, there are three deaths that happen. Um, sorry, uh, two deaths that happen. Margaret Cotton, which is Fred Cotton's daughter, and Frederick Cotton, uh, his wife, she dies as well. Adelaide, she dies in January 19, sorry, 1870. Now, again, the doctors certify all these people as dying from natural causes. And yet, in hindsight, people began to accuse her of those deaths as well. But I struggle with that because she doesn't seem to have a connection at this point with this family or she may have had and we don't know because margaret cotton fred's sister she apparently knew mary before this incident and there is a question as to whether or not margaret cotton introduced her to fred at some point and at what point she actually arrives at fred's residence 
that's uncertain. And it's in that situation where she was accused of poisoning the pigs because there were pigs around. And in 1870, Margaret Cotton Fred's sister also dies. Now, this death was also attributed to Mary by gossip. But the doctor certified pleural pneumonia as the cause, which is the same disease the pigs died from. How, how do we jump to the conclusion that Mary killed them as well? Um, there is no evidence, absolutely no evidence, outside of speculation and gossip that she was involved in any of those deaths. We'll return in a moment. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Back again. So she's not living at, at the Cotton House. That's correct. She's working for another family. That, well, yes, she's working in a laundry. Um, but the point that here again is, can I throw a spanner in the works here again? In 1870 June, which is not too long after Margaret Cotton died, she died in March. Guess what? Mary Ann's pregnant. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and who is the uh, so, father? Well, Eventually, Fred Cotton accepts responsibility, and she marries uh, Fred in September of 1870. So if we take it that she's pregnant in 1870 June, do we assume that she has known him before that leading up to that pregnancy, which would put her in connection with Fred in 1869-70, you know what I mean? If there was a kind of a courtship, to put it in that terms, she may have connected with the family before then. Speculation, we don't know. <laughs> right. But she's pregnant again. <laughs> and then in September of 1870, she marries Fred. Now, there you go again to get Mary's character. She's a thief, no doubt about it. She's a, a woman who forges uh, signatures, no doubt about it. Here, she's a bigamist. She hasn't got a divorce. And she marries Fred. Now, Fred is indentured. That means he has to work out his contract with the mine uh, because they obviously want to move away from Warbottle where they were. And in uh, 1871, they, they moved to West Auckland, which is the village where I was the sub-postmaster, because Fred has now moved to a mine in West Auckland. And it's in West Auckland then in 1871, February, that Robert Robinson Cotton is born. That was in 1871, February. And you will not be surprised to hear, Eric, that 1871 in September, Fred Cotton, her husband, dies. 
But again, now let me say to you, this was certified by Dr. Kilburn, who was the village doctor, that he died from typhoid hepatitis. Very specific. He was also ill before he died as well from an accident. But the point I make is, here we have another death, which seems suspicious because there was financial gain in this case for Mary of insurance. But again, that was natural in those days, prudential insurance. But the point is the doctor certifies it very specifically as typhoid hepatitis. Um, the thing about it is, that, again, this is where we have to put things into the, the mixture, which causes great suspicions. 1872, Joseph Natras makes a will out in favor of Marianne. Now, Joseph Natras, if you watched, uh, you, I don't know whether in, in, in America, did you see the series Dark Angel that was written, which sensationalized her life? Uh, and they, they, they say that Mary had a long-term relationship with this man, Joseph Natras, but I doubt that because he was married uh, to Catherine Thorborn and didn't, uh, have, didn't appear to have any known contact with Mary until West Auckland. Uh, because he used to live in Shildon, which is not far from West Auckland, and then moved to West Auckland. And he became a lodger eventually with Mary. And he then obviously is having a, a relationship with Mary, and in 72 makes out his will in favor of Mary Anne. So you can see that the circumstances suggest there might be something nefarious going on, but yet a doctor says it's definitely typhoid hepatitis. So when did she come into this contact with Joseph? Was it after or before the death? An awful lot of questions, Eric, isn't there? There are a lot of questions, yes. Now, the interesting thing then in March 72, Frederick Cotton Jr. dies. Again, Dr. Kilburn certifies it as gastric fever. 1872 March, Robert Robinson Cotton dies. And he's certified as natural death, teething, three-week convulsions. So two deaths in March. And you will not be surprised to hear, in 1872, March, the same month, Mary Ann is pregnant. Uh, congratulations to her, <laughs> uh, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, goes, it even gets more uh, curious. 1872, April the 1st, the month after she's pregnant, Joseph Natras dies. Again, doctors say natural causes, typhoid fever. 1872, July, Charles Edward Cotton dies. Dr. Kilburn takes an inquest and certifies it as natural causes. He's the last one to die. Now, it's interesting he that Kilborn did an inquest and certified as natural. So here we have all these deaths, as I said to you at the beginning, 20 in total. And she's now in West Auckland with these 20 deaths in her wake. And as I've tried to do is say, was she or was she not guilty of all these deaths? So when does someone finally grow concerned about these deaths? Okay, That's, I'm glad you're asking that question because there's a, a guy called Thomas Riley. 
Now, Marianne was obviously, I, I don't know how attractive she, her picture doesn't make her look that attractive, but she must have had something that appeals to her because this guy, Thomas Riley, it's rumored, rumored that he wanted to have uh, a relationship with Marianne. He was married and Marianne apparently refused him. And so he's living around with a wee bit of resentment. And the doctor says it's natural causes. Mary goes to him because he's in charge of the parish finances and says, look, I have got no money. Will the parish bury the child? Now, this is interesting. He agrees. He says, yes, we'll bury the child. Why does he agree that? And then all of a sudden he goes to the police and says, listen, I don't agree with the doctor. Can we uh, do something about this? And so we have Mary now, who has been cleared of this death through an inquest, being put in the dock by Thomas Riley, and he demands a second autopsy is done. Now, this is interesting, Eric. The first autopsy was done in a public house, which was next door to Mary's house. And that's where the child was examined and found to be of natural causes. The next time the inquest is done, it's done on a table in the room of Mary's house where there is green wallpaper on the walls. Now, Dr. Kilburn has taken some samples and he does a forensic test for arsenic, which proves positive. But what he does with the samples, now can you believe this for the doctor? He buries it in his garden, in a bottle in his garden. Now, forensic science would say to me, and I'm not a forensic scientist, does that not have a suspicion of causing contamination from soil which could contain poison? Right. So they send off the samples to Leeds to Scattergood, who is an uh, one of the most prominent, if you like, forensic experts at the time in arsenic, and he confirms arsenic's present. And so now Mary has got a problem. So what do they do? They dig up the bodies, Eric. That's what they do. <laughs> <laughs> now, again, these people are buried in a churchyard, no gravestones or anything, and I've walked around that churchyard. Uh, the coffins are very cheap coffins, obviously, because they're buried under parish rules. Soil has probably got in. And then they dig these up under very, very lax sanitation, if you like. They're just dug up and the bodies are examined. And Joseph Natras and uh, Frederick Cotton Jr. and Robert Robertson, three of the bodies that were claimed, they couldn't find Fred's. But the three that they did find, when they were examined, it's claimed that there was arsenic in all three bodies. Now, there's a dilemma, isn't it? There's an argument. And what Mary says is she went to Thomas Riley's shop, he owned a shop, and bought some uh, product. And she said it could have been contaminated with the arsenic. She had bought arsenic soap from the chemist and used it in her home. And here's another little thing to throw into the pot, Eric. Dr. Kilburn and one of his other doctors who were with him have a problem because Kilburn says there's no, pro no possibility of arsenic being mixed up by him with a, a product called bismuth, which was given to treat uh, the people that Marianne was looking after. 
And they visited Marianne's home quite regularly to treat the young child. But another doctor who was in the surgery with them says there was arsenic. So the two doctors at the trial have a dispute. One says there was none, the other says there was. That was common for bismuth to be mixed up and could sometimes contain arsenic. So then what I'm saying to you is it's not that I'm saying Mary's innocent. I'm saying here again is another anomaly which causes a problem. So you combine the green wallpaper, combine the possibility of contamination from a medicine uh, or a mixed-up product from Riley's shop, you've got all these different problems. Now, what you have to come to a conclusion is, is Mary responsible for all those deaths? Or, as we've looked at, is it coincidence? Yeah. And did someone ever come forward and say that they saw her administering arsenic to someone in a drink? No, or nobody. She had two lodgers in the, the house living with her. And whilst they report that she was the one who looked after it, no one can put their hand on their heart and say, I saw her do this. Everything was circumstantial. She, because they had poison in their bodies, QED, she did it because she's the one who's looking after them. But who else would look after them? Certainly not the lodgers. But no one saw her administer it. There's no evidence whatsoever of the, to that effect. And, the, you know, this is where I have to put into the pot again, Eric, just to confuse things. Once it broke the news that this poisoner was at work, all hell was let loose in the newspapers before the trial. She was completely condemned. And all of a sudden, people were digging up things from her past and saying, oh, she did this, she did that, she did the other. And the newspapers, as you would probably appreciate, swallowed it up. What a sensation. Multiple poisoner, serial killer. Wow, she must have done them all. And so the whole outrage was already there before she was even tried. And the, as I said to you before, the court case was a sham initially at Bishop Auckland, where her solicitor didn't even turn up for one of the hearings. And she had to sit there listening to the evidence and couldn't say nothing because her sister told her not to say anything. And then she was accused of not saying anything, but she was doing what she was told by her solicitor who didn't turn up. So you can see again that the odds were stacked against her for making a defense. Where did she get the nickname? Dark Angel. Well, that was a, a modern one. That was more a modern one uh, that was put on to her um, just because it has this connotation of uh, evil, if you like. But it, it wasn't at the time. At the time, she was just simply called the, the West Auckland Secret Poisoner. That's what they called her. And as I said to you, the poem and song that they wrote about her had her tried and condemned before she even was. And that was the onslaught of the newspapers. It wouldn't be allowed today. So Dr. Scattergood was the star witness for the prosecution, right? Oh, oh definitely. He, he's the one that he brought the bacon home. But when she turned up for the Durham trial, again, uh, she found that she had no representation. So one had to be appointed for her um, to defend her. And he had very little time to prepare the case. 
because it was done in such a hurry. So she was left uh, with this guy who had just a very quick survey of the paperwork. And uh, Thomas Campbell, who was not a qualified counselor, he hadn't taken silk yet. He was the one who was lumbered, if you like, with this problem. How do I defend this woman? And as I said to you, he did his best. He did an excellent job of doing his best to try and point to the fact that the, contradic the contradiction in the doctors, he pointed to the different uh, green wallpaper, the medicine bottle mix-up, uh, the purity of the bismuth that was re recommended for the sick people. Um, no one had analyzed the powders to see if there was any impurity in them, uh, even though Foster knew that there was bismuth, which could at times be contaminated. But um, Campbell brought up all these things, including the arsenic soap and the wallpaper. He did his best. But the prosecutor, Charles Russell, again, an excellent uh, prosecutor, and the judge, Thomas Dixon, I think, to be quite frank, they already made up their mind. And I don't think she stood a chance of ever being acquitted. Now, whether or not she was guilty, I'm not making a conclusion. <laughs> I'm just asking that in today's world, if we want to bring it into today, she would never have been found guilty because of so many forensic problems, so much about the way the newspapers had berated her, so much about the way her defense was conducted. There was an awful lot of ways that that trial was a sham. Um, and I don't think that at the end of the day, there was a fair hearing. Now, that's not to say she wasn't guilty. It's just to simply say that no matter how bad people paint you, you deserve to be heard and have given a fair crack of the whip. And I don't think this happened to Marianne Cotton. It was during these proceedings that she gave birth to her final child, correct? That's correct. Uh, she gave birth to uh, Margaret Edith Quick Manning uh, in 1873. And uh, she... I tell, let, let me just give you a little sort of thing, which I don't know whether it means anything or not, but Mary's in the prison cell and the baby has been given away to adoption and they come to pick her up. Now, Mary has a shawl that she, she really treasured, a, a, you know, a shawl she wrapped around her shoulders. And she takes that shawl and rips it in two and gives it to the parents to wrap the baby in because she really loved that child, I believe and had nursed her until the people came and took her. And she gave her the name Margaret Edith Quick Manning Cotton. Now that was Mary's last attempt to protect the child because Quick Manning is the name of a very rich customs guy who used to be in West Auckland with her. And the rumors were that she had a relationship with him, but there was no evidence of that at all. I think that was later speculation. And if you look at the birth certificate, oh, sorry, you can't look at it, but when you look at the birth certificate for, for uh, Margaret, it says the father is unknown. So she doesn't give any name of the father in the birth certificate. But it's likely to have been Joseph Natras. Hmm. But Quick Money was a better name. She thought that might help Margaret in her future life. And Margaret did live, you know, she lived to 1954. And she was a lovely lady. She went blind and her sons fought in the First World War. Um, she had a good life. And uh, if you want a legacy, then there it is. She gave birth to a lady who turned out to be quite a lovely person. And her 
other son, George, who she left with the neighbor, George Robinson, he turned out to have a very nice life and a great family. So the two children separated from her at the end. They were her only children who lived long, healthy, productive lives. As, and also George, the one she took with and brought back to the neighbor. So the three of them, now again, you see, so out of the darkness, if you like, of the whole episode, we have these wonderful flowers that grow and, uh, and prosper, despite all the situation that was behind them. Some witnesses had remembered that she had shown some emotion, some sadness after her children had passed away, right? She wasn't cold or distant or anything like no, that. No, especially in the um, West Auckland deaths, her neighbours testify that she was very, very upset. And you've got to understand in the West Auckland cases, she was the one that pestered the doctors to come and look after him. She went down to them. She was, she harassed them. She, she really, you know. And again, I just posed the question without any judgment. If you were murdering someone, would you go down and pester a doctor to come and have a look? So do you think she goes down in history as a, as a woman with some of the worst luck ever? <laughs> well, I think she goes down in history as a woman who lived through a very dark period, Victorian times, where death was all around you. Death was common. And a lot of deaths were never, ever looked at. So you had this problem where you've got doctors. Now, the doctors have a responsibility, you would imagine, to ensure that when they certify a death, it's being certified correctly and that they have done due diligence. So that's one question. The second question is, why has nobody else in the whole history of Marianne Cotton not raised any suspicions, neither the doctors, neither the neighbors, no one did. It was only until after she was arrested, people started to come out and accuse her of all these things. Now, you either say she is guilty and she did murder more than one person, or you say that she has had a lot of difficulties in her life and that the circumstances uh, were such that a lot of people died around her. But here's a, here, fine, a sort of thought to put into this. When you look at someone like myself, I'm 71 years of age. I wonder how many deaths I have experienced that were close to me over the years. Do you know what I mean? And none of them were suspicious. None of them were uh, my involvement. But in Victorian England, it was very unusual for someone not to have the experience of death around them. So... The final death in this story is hers. That's right. She was hung in Durham jail uh, on March the 24th, 1873. And uh, yeah, she was hung. And the inquest was held uh, by Ch uh, the coroner, Chester Ward, held the, the inquest. And she was certified as having died by hanging. I found it interesting that as she awaited her execution, her stepfather visited her. Yes. <laughs> and that was not an easy meeting, apparently. Yeah, I mean, you can understand it. He's come, and I just, I, I'm a terrible one for doing this, Eric, so please forgive me. I just throw these things in because they, 
I've got a very suspicious mind. I sure. wonder what he was trying to come for because he hadn't, you know, he had, he had no contact with her. He had no bothered his backside to have a relationship with her. Was he afraid of her saying something about his wife's death before he married the neighbor? Question. <laughs> <laughs> you see, this is my problem as a researcher, as someone who, in historical terms, I question everything because you have to ask questions, no matter how difficult they are, to arrive at some kind of truth, or at least at some kind of understanding of possibilities that might be there. And of those possibilities, sometimes because you don't have the person sitting in front of you, you have to make up your own judgment as a human being with a brain as to what you feel and what you think. And that's the way I leave Marianne Cotton in my book. I asked you as a reader to say, well, I've read the, the book, I've seen this here, I've looked at the court case, I've looked at all that happened to her. Hmm, is she or is she not? I, I appreciate your skepticism that you didn't pass judgment already on her before you yes. began your project. Now, as a local historian, I've never done that. I think that you've got to be open to the fact that history is written by the victors and those who survive. And when you look at history that way, you then ask yourself, well, what has the people who survive got to gain by the history they're telling? And then you examine that, and that's where you begin to uncover truth. So I haven't seen that movie you referred to about her, uh, Dark Angel. Uh, what did you think of it? I thought it was rubbish. Sorry for being so blunt. Because what it did was it took the sexual side of Marianne and really emphasized that more than anything else, her as a loose woman and her as the sort of, it, it, I think the decision had been made that she was this wicked woman, so let's paint it as a wicked woman. And uh, as you said before, there now, when you enter this project, you, you, did you decide at the beginning of the Dark Angel series, I'm going to convict her and she's going to be found guilty. That's it. You know, she's guilty. End of story. I didn't think it was a fair assessment of the woman's life and did not fairly consider the evidence. No, you, you've certainly approached it the, the right way. I think, as I said, I repeat myself, it's the only way to approach history. If you don't question history, you will not know its truth. Yes, yes. And with a story this old, especially with chunks of her life, a mystery will never, of course, know the full truth. You can't. It's impossible. It's judgment, Eric. It's judgment because you can look back and you can see everything. You can analyze everything. As I said before, you, you, you question history and all of that. But at the end of the day, you were not there. <laughs> right. And therefore, <laughs> exactly. you cannot know. Well, this has been great. I know that your publisher is out of the UK, Pen and Sword, but your book is definitely available to purchase for North American listeners. Well, I know that there's a lot of Americans have bought it, Eric, so that someone over there is buying it. <laughs> That's great. Uh, no, I tell you, it was number one in Amazon in its category at one point because it is, I think, the first attempt to try and really look at this subject with an open mind um, because it is, it is, it's doing that. It's asking people, rather than take everything for granted, 
you know, use your own intelligence, your own feelings, and you judge. And I go to school sometimes when I was in West Auckland teaching kids about Marianne because it was a topic on their history. And every single time, without exception, the majority of children went home to their parents, and the letters from the parents confirm this, saying, she may not be guilty, mum. <laughs> I'd left that sort of impression with them that they were no longer sure that the gossip they were hearing in the local village was true anymore because they were encouraged to question the truth that they were hearing to find out whether it stood up to investigation, even as children. And they were remarkable kids. They're so astute. And they, you know, like a lot of people who have written about it to me have said, it really has caused them not to say she's innocent, but to say, was she guilty? There's a difference. That's great. Excellent. Well, this has been fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been great talking to you, Eric. Again, I have been talking with Martin Connolly. His book is called Mary Ann Cotton, Dark Angel, Britain's First Female Serial Killer. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.